Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts 17. Today we're going to read the first nine verses together. We're going to focus on a statement made at the end of verse 6. There's a number of unbelieving Jews who are reacting to the ministry of Paul and Silas, and they say, These men have turned the world upside down. Uh, That's my uh, thread that's going to be, Lord willing, connecting this sermon. These men have turned the world upside down. I'd like to briefly remind you where we find ourselves this morning because it's been a while since we've been in Acts. I mean, I think it was the second to last Sunday in May and when we were last in Acts. Paul and Silas have been commissioned by the church in Antioch to be missionaries and to go and preach the gospel and to plant churches. Paul is in the middle... He's in the middle of his second missionary journey. He and company have crossed on a boat from Asia to Europe. He's gone from Turkey to Greece. And they're somewhere in the northernmost part of Greece, an area known as Macedonia. And if you have any level of familiarity at all with the New Testament books, a lot of his stops on this journey are going to be very familiar to you. He'll go to places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. In May, we left off looking at the planting of the church in Philippi. And today, as we come back, we're seeing the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to see just how they turned the world upside down. But first, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, You have told us that Your Word does not return void. When it goes out, it will accomplish its purpose. And so we ask that you would work this morning. Would you work in our hearts? And again, turn that which is upside down. Would you turn it right side up? Work within us as we read your word and hear it preached, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, 
and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Right, so Paul is doing his usual thing. This is his modus operandi. Enter a new city, find the synagogue, go there, worship with the Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, and then when you have the opportunity, stand up and point them to Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. Luke says this was his custom. It makes sense. He's wanting to plant a church, and so he's going to go where God's people would be. He's locating the residents of the city who still believed in the Old Testament promises of God and were waiting on their fulfillment. They would be in the synagogue. And Luke tells us that for three weeks in a row, Paul reasoned with them. From the Scriptures. When Luke says Scriptures there, he's speaking about, uh, was it the, the 38 books of the, New, of the Old Testament? He's reasoning from those books. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now that could easily be a whole sermon in and of itself, couldn't it? why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It was necessary for him to suffer the wrath of God against sin so that his bride, the church, wouldn't. It was necessary for him to die because the wages of sin is death and he took our sin upon himself. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was necessary for him to die so that justice might be done and also so that we might receive mercy. And it was also necessary for him to rise. It was necessary to rise from the dead so that we might know that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. So that we might know his work was accomplished. So that we might know that being united to him, we have a future hope. And we will rise one day as well. And that death and the grave are not the end. Christ's resurrection is necessary because as Paul writes 
in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and we are all still in our sins. No resurrection, no Christianity. So this is what Paul preached those three Sabbaths. He takes this common ground that he had with them, those Old Testament scriptures, and he reasoned and explained and proved that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He's the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. This was Paul's labor. This is what he's doing. Reasoning, explaining, proving from the Scripture who Jesus Christ is. And what's the result? Well, we see both a positive and a negative result. Positively, we see that people believed. They were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. After three weeks of reasoning from the Scriptures, a number of souls are brought in to the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that these included Jews, as well as a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women there in Thessalonica. We can also assume that another would have been Jason, the guy running the inn or Airbnb that Paul and Silas are staying at. God's word was preached and it didn't return void. He's promised in Isaiah 55, 11, my word shall not return empty. It shall succeed and accomplish its purpose. And that purpose was bringing these souls to saving faith in his son. They were made willing to believe in Christ and join Paul. That's the positive response. Then there's the negative response. In verse 5, Luke records that the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. So you have unbelieving Jews who are jealous. Jealous that Paul has persuaded some of their own, some people under their authority... And now these people are following Paul and confessing Christ. And so what do they do? They go out into the streets and into the marketplaces and they get the bums riled up. Luke calls them wicked men of the rabble. Now these are these are bums. People who have nothing better to do than riot and break stuff. Maybe the Jews gave these wicked men of rabble maybe a bottle of strong wine or some money and said, I want you to go cause some trouble. We'll cover for you. You won't get arrested. I want you to go and demonstrate your displeasure in what this man Paul is doing and we'll make sure the flack doesn't come back on you. So that's what happens. 
Now these bums, these wicked men of the rabble set the city in an uproar. And they go to Jason's home looking for Paul and Silas, wanting to drag them out into the crowd where they most likely plan to lynch them. When they can't find them, out of frustration, they just grab Jason and a few others who had believed and take them to the city authorities. Jason and the others have to pay a fine. We're told it's a security. Probably a fine that this isn't going to happen again. Their belief in Christ has cost them financially and they have to pay, but then they're let go. That's not what I want to focus on. What I'm concerned with is a statement these unbelieving Jews make. They shout out, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Apparently they've heard what happened in Philippi. Maybe someone from Philippi has traveled to Thessalonica or has followed Paul and Silas and warned them. And they go before these officials and say, These men who are turning the world upside down, they've come here also. They're they're doing the same thing here that they did in Philippi, and it must be stopped. Now, there's a temptation on the part of the preacher to say, I want you to be just like Paul and Silas. I want you to go out there and turn the world upside down, cause trouble for the sake of Christ and the gospel. You know, just like King Ahab called Elijah a troubler of Israel. You go and be a thorn in the side of unbelieving leaders. Upset Satan's apple cart. Don't let unbelievers stay comfortable in their sin. I don't think that's the application of this text. And here's why. Who are the ones causing the trouble? It's the unbelieving Jews. The bums. They're the ones who set the city in an uproar. They're the ones attacking homes and disturbing the peace. What did Paul do? Paul was in the synagogue preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Now, it is true that later in this very chapter, we'll see Paul make a very public address at the Areopagus in Athens. But here in Thessalonica, Paul is simply ministering within the walls of a synagogue, pointing people to Christ. They are the ones disturbing the peace. They're the ones responsible for the violence and the unrest. They're the ones causing the trouble, and yet they are putting the blame on the Christians. There's nothing new about this. This is the same charge Jesus faced. They said of Jesus, he was a disturber of the peace. He was a threat to Caesar. He was seditious. He was causing riots. He was upsetting people. And they crucified him because of it. This this practice of blaming Christians continued. It continued all the way until Christianity became the state religion of Rome. Every time there was trouble in the empire... Every time there was war or famine or a plague, everyone would scream, it's the Christians' fault. They've done this. 
feed them to the lions. Nero did this. Nero's responsible for burning down Rome, and he blamed the Christians. We see that same thing here. John Calvin made the comment, he says, quote, This is the lot of the gospel, to be blamed for the disturbances that Satan has caused. Calvin continues, The malice of Christ's enemies blames holy and modest teachers for the riots they themselves have started. The gospel is certainly not preached to incite people to fight one another, but to keep them in peace, reconciled to God. All right, we can see the difference here. We can see what pointing people to Christ produces. The last thing Calvin says is that when Christ kindly invites us to himself, Satan and the wicked are in an uproar. That's what we see. Christ humbly inviting these folks in Thessalonica to himself, and Satan and the wicked are in an uproar. Paul didn't have to go looking for trouble. Simply, faithfully holding to the gospel of grace and sharing that gospel with sinners was enough. Now, I hope this sounds somewhat familiar to you. Because isn't this what we saw as we ended the Beatitudes? I mean, I can't imagine a smoother transition back into Acts. You have reviling, slandering, persecuting, all as a response of the unbelieving world to the work of God within the lives of his people. That's what we see. Paul preaches Christ from the Old Testament books. Luke tells us that many were persuaded. Many believed that Jesus was the Christ. And the unbelieving world loses its mind. And they say, Paul, you are turning the world upside down. Now, are they speaking the truth? They are. Ironically, there is a turning happening. But it's not that Paul and Silas are turning the world upside down. It's that they're turning the world right side up. You see, the world was already upside down. The world has been upside down since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Before Genesis 3, the world was not this way. You can go to the beginning of your Bible and and read that God saw everything that he had made and it was what? Very good. Everything was as it should be. Everything was right side up. We're told that God made trees to come out of the ground and these trees were pleasant to the sight and good for food. Adam is put in the garden to work it and keep it. 
Everything is right in this world. But what happens? The world is turned upside down. Everything flips. Our first parents don't listen to God. They listen to the serpent. Instead of trusting, they now doubt the good, loving care of their Creator. Instead of seeing themselves as His creatures, the work of His hands, they desire to be like Him, to be gods themselves. And so they break the one commandment they've been given. And the world is turned upside down. Sin and death flood into the world and become the new normal. And now the ground, which was good and blessed before, is now cursed. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. Sin turns the world upside down. And don't we know it? That we live in an upside down world. I remember coming home from kindergarten and being told that our beloved family dog had been hit by a car. And as a five or six year old, I remember walking with my dad as he's pushing the dog in a wheelbarrow and we go into the backyard and bury it. And I remember standing there and thinking, it's not supposed to be this way. Something is not right with this. And that's just a kid losing his dog. I know you've got your own memories. You've got things in your life that have made you say, it's not supposed to be this way. We can look at our world and it is clear that something is wrong. Headline after headline, we're reminded that the world is upside down. There's an interesting quote that's in line with this. It comes from the British theologian Theo Hobson. Albert Muller quotes it all the time on his briefing. But it's the marks of a moral revolution. I'm going to tamper with it a little bit, but it's, it's three things. We, we live in a world in which, number one, those things which were universally condemned are now celebrated. Number two, those things which were universally celebrated are now condemned. And then number three, those who refuse to celebrate the upside-downness are now condemned. I'll repeat those quickly. The, the, the things which were universally condemned are now celebrated. The things which were universally celebrated are now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate the upside-downness are now condemned. That's not unique to our day and age either by the way. 
we live in an upside-down world. But as we're reminded in today's text, it won't always be so. In fact, our Lord has already begun the work of setting things to right. Setting the upside-down world right-side up again. Under the rule of King Jesus, wrong will be made right again, and the curse will be reversed. Now this stream of thought led me in my writing, of course, to the well-known quote from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You have all these animals in Narnia living in this frozen wasteland where it's always winter and never Christmas. And one of those animals, I can't remember who, probably one of the beavers, is looking ahead uh, for the return of Aslan. Aslan is the lion, uh, the one in the story representing uh, Jesus Christ. And one of these animals is looking ahead for the return of Aslan, and he, he says this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Those were words C.S. Lewis used to paint a picture of how the king will make everything right again. How, how he will set the world right side up. Well, those were Lewis's words, but what about the words of our Lord himself? In Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Revelation 21.5. We read, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Or Isaiah 65.17. For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, how is King Jesus doing this? This work of recreation began in his earthly ministry, of course, but most importantly, it began by subjecting himself to the most upside-down moment in all of world history. What would that be? What is the greatest evidence of the upside-downness of this world? It is the perfect Son of God being nailed to and hanging from a Roman cross. And then having all the rabble roll dice to see who gets his clothing. There has never been a more upside-down moment than that 
And yet, that event is how this turning, this right-side-upping begins. And we know that that was only the beginning. The Lord would return to His throne in heaven and would then give His Spirit to His people. And by His power, He uses men and women who are broken and imperfect but redeemed. He uses them to continue His work. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. They are turning a wrong, godless, unbelieving world upside down. In their preaching and pointing people to Christ, they are a part of the right side upping. Wrong is being made right. Sorrows will be no more. Death will die. And we will have spring or newness of life again. That leads me into my final point. This newness of life or springtime of the soul. I cannot end this sermon simply having your eyes out there at this wrong backwards world. This has to be made personal for all of us. I need you to ask yourself, has the gospel, this wonderful message of the life, death, resurrection of Christ for sinners, has it turned your world upside down? Has saving faith in Christ turned your life upside down? We all know about the world out there. But the world out there isn't the only thing that needs to be made right. Your heart does as well, and so does mine. Because our hearts are naturally upside down. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was preaching on this verse. And he remarked that man is a little world. And what God does in the outer world, he does in the inner. And then Spurgeon says, if any of you would be saved, your hearts must be turned upside down. Has that happened for you? Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? One who is spiritually dead being made spiritually alive. A life that is upside down being turned right side up. And he says there's no salvation without this jarring work of grace. And so I ask you, has your life been turned upside down? Has your heart been turned upside down? Let's start with beliefs. Have your beliefs changed? They will for the Christian. That which we believed to be true, we now know is false. And that which we rejected and despised as false, as false and foolish, 
we now embrace as the greatest news and wisdom that could possibly reach our ears. Is the truth of Christ reigning in your soul? Have your beliefs been turned right side up? What about your hopes? Are they the normal, ordinary hopes of an unbelieving, upside-down world? What are you hoping in? The things of this world? Or the King of glory? Are you hoping to attain paradise here and now? Or are you looking for it in the world to come? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A heavenly city not built by human hands. Is your hope above or below? What about your pleasures? What do you find pleasure in? Have they been turned upside down? For the Christian, that which was sweet is now bitter. And that was once bitter is now sweet. Is your pleasure consonant with an unbelieving, godless world? Or has it, maybe to your surprise, been turned upside down? And the things which before were so dull and uncompelling now fill you with joy and anticipation and satisfaction. What about your home? Your relationship with your spouse? Children, brothers, sisters, extended family, your in-laws. Has your home been turned upside down? Have those relationships been turned right side up, I should say? Is there an air of grace within the walls of your home? Or would your household and your family be totally familiar and normal to an unbelieving, upside-down world? We could keep going. But in all these things, we must ask ourselves, has God turned my life, my heart, upside down? The, the, The renewal that He has promised to do out there Has that renewal started within you? Those unbelieving Jews said of Paul and Silas, they are turning the world upside down. If they knew you and could see your heart, would they say the same? Has the gospel of grace changed you? All you need to do is to cry out to him. Cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, one who is helplessly upside down. And he will act. And wrong will be made right. He has promised in Isaiah 50, uh, 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer for all of us this morning, that we would cry out to you, that we would confess the ways in which we are still upside down. We would confess the ways in which we are still in uh, consonant with the unbelieving world. God, continue this work you have begun. And for those of us where that work may not exist, bring life, bring rebirth, bring newness of life that we might walk with you and believe in your Son. We ask this all in his name. Amen.